Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 35, Apollo Program Flight 4, Apollo 10, Down Among Them. Last time, we took the full Apollo stack for a ride for the first time with the crew of Apollo 9. Jim McDivitt, David Scott, and Rusty Schweikart performed a nearly flawless demonstration of the capabilities of the lunar module in low Earth orbit, including a lengthy and risky rendezvous exercise. With the only notable issue being some LEM engine chugging at low power settings, the path was clear to take the next step towards a landing. That next step was the F-type mission, Apollo 10. This is normally the point where we would have expected the E-type high-orbit mission, but thanks to a little LEM tardiness, NASA performed the old switcheroo with Apollo 8 and 9, extending the high-orbit all the way to the moon, sans LEM so we'll be skipping directly from D to F. An F-type mission was essentially a complete dress rehearsal for the landing. Again, a full stack of lunar command and service modules would be launched on a single Saturn V. But instead of remaining in low Earth orbit, for the second time, the S-4B would be used for the translunar injection burn, sending the whole stack out to the moon. Once there, the LEM would separate and descend within spitting distance of the planned landing site for Apollo 11. The LEM would then rendezvous with the CSM, the crew would transfer back to the main spacecraft, the LEM would be jettisoned, and the CSM would head home. That's a pretty easy mission to describe. Executing it, however, would be a lot harder. In fact, for this critical mission, the NASA managers chose the first all-veteran crew, we always seem to go from the left to the right on the show, so let's switch it up. Flying in the right-hand seat was Lunar Module Pilot Gene Cernan. We last saw Cernan as he tried to catch his breath after an exhausting failed EVA on Gemini 9A. For more background on Cernan, head back to episode 19, which covered that mission. This was his second of three space flights. In the center was another familiar face, Command Module Pilot John Young. We know Young from his flight as pilot on Gemini 3 and as command pilot on Gemini 10, which are covered in episodes 13 and 20, respectively. This was his third of six space flights. We're going to be seeing a lot of John Young. And flying in the left seat was yet another familiar face, Mission Commander Tom Stafford. Another Gemini veteran, we know Stafford from his flight as pilot on Gemini 5 and as command pilot on Gemini 9A alongside Gene Cernan. This was his third of four flights. Fun fact, this is one of only two all-spaceflight veteran crews of the entire Apollo program. Like all Apollo flights with both command and lunar modules, Apollo 10 was going to need call signs for the separate vehicles. NASA Public Affairs was hoping that the Apollo 10 crew would come up with something a little more dignified than the names their predecessors chose, Gumdrop and Spider. Well, unfortunately for the PR folks, please welcome to the stage, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. But what might at first glance seem like just a fun reference to a popular cartoon actually had a little more substance than it seems. In an effort to recognize excellence in the NASA workforce, as well as spread awareness of their direct impact on the safety of the astronauts, the Silver Snoopy Award was created in 1968. Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip, was a fan of the space program and allowed NASA to create the award at no cost. 
The Silver Snoopy Award is an incredibly rare and prestigious honor given to only a tiny percentage of the hundreds of thousands of men and women who work on the human spaceflight program. In a nod to the newly created award, the Apollo 10 crew chose to name their lem Snoopy. And since there was clearly only one appropriate name for Snoopy's companion, the CSM soon became Charlie Brown. After a couple minor tweaks for various operational issues and to ensure ideal lighting at the moon, the day of the launch was set to May 18, 1969. Only 228 days until the end of the year, but, you know, who's counting? At 12.49 p.m. local time, Apollo 10 began the second human journey to the moon, but this time from a few miles over. This was the first and only lunar mission to launch from Launch Pad 39B, just a few miles north of the usual 39A. Back when the space program was just ramping up, there were plans for more pads in order to ensure a rapid tempo of flights. But it turned out that not as many flights were required as they thought, and the use of the vehicle assembly building and crawler transporter meant that each rocket didn't need to spend as much time on the pad. So two was just fine. Apollo 10 launched from 39B because the missions were coming so quickly now that preparations for Apollo 11 were already underway at 39A. Despite numerous tweaks to ameliorate the concerning pogo oscillation problem, Apollo 10 was one of the roughest rides yet. One such tweak was to shut down the center engine of the S2 stage a minute and a half early and burn the four outboard engines a little longer. If anything, that seemed to make things worse. Even the S-4B got in the act this time, creating such a rough ride that the crew were left wondering if the fragile Lem could have been damaged. I kind of love how even after all the analysis, a lot of this boils down to, well, maybe this will help. Hmm, guess not. After the usual post-orbital insertion checks, it became clear that everything was in working order after all. The S-4B fired up again for the lengthy translunar injection burn, and Charlie Brown and Snoopy were on their way to the moon. Another fun fact, the mass of the command, service, and lunar modules combined is greater than all six Mercury spacecraft and all ten Gemini spacecraft combined. And they still have room to spare. The Saturn V was a beast. First on the agenda was to perform the transposition, docking, and extraction maneuver. This had presented no difficulty on Apollo 9, but this would be the first time it would be performed on an actual lunar trajectory. Charlie Brown popped off the top of the S-4B, and Command Module Pilot John Young skillfully turned the CSM around, puffed the RCS, and headed in to retrieve Snoopy. For the first time, the entire world could join in on this important activity. That's because the previous TV broadcasts had been so successful that an upgraded camera was included on Apollo 10. It had a small viewfinder, allowing the user to see where the camera was pointed and avoiding the ever-drifting image problems from Apollo 8, and also broadcast in <gasps> color. If you'd like to see what the rest of the world saw, our old friend Lunar Module 5 on YouTube has us covered again. I should probably figure out a good way to make show notes with links and such, but I haven't yet. So if you want to see this, just go to YouTube and search for Apollo 10 First Color TV and the broadcast should be the first result. I also found a higher quality version recorded with the 16mm video camera. To find that, just search for Apollo 10 Magazine 1089-A, 
That's 1089-A. The Apollo 10 crew actually broadcast quite a bit of video, and most of it seems to be online, so if you're interested, I encourage you to poke around. When Apollo 8 flew to the moon, due to the specifics of the lighting and their trajectory, they were unable to see their target for most of the flight. In fact, a cool moment that I forgot to mention in that episode was that their first real glimpse of the moon was the moment when Bill Anders realized that the black absence of stars outside of his window was actually the moon, just a few dozen miles away. Spooky. Apollo 10 was a little different, and they had no difficulty spotting the moon on the way out. In fact, they could even see the dark parts quite well thanks to Earth shine, light from the sun that had reflected off of the Earth. The trip out was much the same as Apollo 8, but with slight modifications thanks to lessons learned. For example, it was important to time the wastewater dumps such that it didn't interfere with navigational sightings. The crystallized flakes of urine could easily be mistaken for stars. And I guess that keeps the streak alive of talking about human waste products in space. After slipping behind the moon, Apollo 10 placed itself into an initial lunar orbit by burning the SPS engine for 5 minutes and 20 seconds, considerably longer than Apollo 8's burn thanks to the heavy addition of the LEM. Apollo 8 and 10 both started out with an orbit that had a relatively high apoapsis, the high point of the orbit, which they then circularized a couple of revolutions later. This was to prevent a scenario where if the engine burned for a few seconds longer than planned, the spacecraft could be put on an impact trajectory. Right on schedule, Charlie Brown and Snoopy emerged from the far side of the moon with Mission Commander Tom Stafford reporting to Houston, You can tell the world that we have arrived. I really hesitated to include this next nugget of humor, since it's rapidly becoming a theme of the space above us, but... It's just too good. I have another poop story. I'm sorry. Reading through the transcript from the onboard voice recorder, stuff that wasn't transmitted at the time, there are a lot of great moments that remind you just how strange it is to have humans in space. I've already discussed the difficulty of using the facilities in zero gravity, including Apollo 7's memorable advice, get naked, allow an hour, bring plenty of tissues. Well... It turns out that even with practice, it can be pretty difficult. Here's a snippet from the transcript. Oh, who did it? Who did what? What? Who did it? Where did that come from? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it's one of mine. Mine was a little more sticky than that. Throw that away. God almighty. Yeah, and that wasn't even an isolated incident. Skimming through the transcript, it happened at least three times. I truly did not expect spaceflight to be so gross. And believe it or not, I'm actually sparing you from the worst of it. Sanitation issues weren't the only interesting thing I found in the transcript, though. Everything from mundane housekeeping to jokes about the integrity of the LEM, Young quipped, I would never have taken my helmet off in that thing, to this exchange. What the hell was that gurgling noise? I don't know, but I'll tell you, that eerie music is what's bothering me. I hear it too. You know, that was funny. Just like something from outer space, really. Who's going to believe it? Nobody. Shall we tell them about it? I don't know. We ought to think about it some. Did you hear it, Tom? Yes, he heard it. Hell, I just want to get out of this suit. 
That was just too weird to ignore, so I looked into it, and the so-called music was actually interference between the radio systems of the two spacecraft, creating spooky sounds. In researching this, I found that apparently one of those crackpot shows on the Discovery Channel picked up on this and tried to make the music out to be some kind of alien signal. Nope, just radio interference. Oh, Discovery Channel, what happened to you? Okay, so now Apollo 10 was in a nice close orbit around the moon. Believe it or not, that was the easy part. Next, Tom Stavard and Gene Cernan would leave John Young behind in the CSM and head into the LEM for the first time. Upon opening the hatch, they discovered a blizzard of tiny mylar insulation flakes floating around. It seems that a piece of the insulating material got caught up in the mix during docking, making a big mess in the LEM to clean up. Once the mess was taken care of and the LEM had been powered on and checked out, it was time for a long day of work to get started. Snoopy and Charlie Brown gently parted ways, and Young blipped the CSM attitude control thrusters to back away. The plan was for Snoopy to perform every aspect of the upcoming landing attempt, but without the final descent to the surface, known as power descent. Once enough distance had been opened up between the LEM and the CSM, Snoopy ignited the descent propulsion system engine and began to lower its orbit. This maneuver, known as the Descent Orbit Insertion, would take the LEM from a roughly circular orbit 100 kilometers in altitude down to one with a low point much closer to the surface. Thanks to the counterintuitive nature of orbital mechanics, by slowing itself down, the LEM actually began to gain speed and slip away from the CSM as it plummeted towards its new orbital low point. As Snoopy grew closer and closer to the surface, its two occupants were hard at work taking photos and noting landmarks. This is because, as closely as possible, the trajectory mimicked the one that would be followed in just a few months by Apollo 11. The hope was that when the mission arrived, its predecessors would have sussed out any potential issues ahead of time, leaving the road clear to just focus on the final descent and landing. In fact, the newly established low point of Snoopy's orbit was placed where that final descent and landing would begin. This brought the crew down to a mere 15 kilometers above the lunar surface. That's about 8 miles for the metrically challenged out there, myself included. It's actually so low that when I first saw it listed as the periapsis, I thought it was a typo, before I remembered the whole point of the mission. While they were never actually all that close to them, the mountains of the moon feel a lot closer from 8 miles away rather than the usual 240,000. On multiple occasions, LMP Gene Cernan exulted, We is down among them. Capcom Charlie Duke responded, I hear you waving your way up the freeway. Just as they were approaching the lowest point of their orbit, the periapsis, a puff of smoke emerged from their camera, which refused to work from that point on, leaving the crew with nothing to do but verbally describe the sights. As a photographer, my heart weeps. Soon after passing through that low point, Snoopy again fired its descent engine in order to raise the high point of its orbit above that of the CSM Charlie Brown. This is because as the LEM moved closer to the surface, it also scooted ahead of the CSM. By raising their orbit, they would allow the CSM to catch up and overtake them again, enabling a rendezvous a few orbits later. Before rendezvous, there was one more major item on the checklist, Lunar Module Staging. 
This again is the maneuver where the lower half of the limb would be cast free and the ascent stage would fly on its own. On a landing mission, this would happen at the moment the crew took off from the surface. On Apollo 10, this would happen shortly after the crew passed through the low point of their orbit again, simulating a return from the surface. Limb staging, even when not on the surface, is pretty scary. A lot of mechanisms have to work just right, or the two spacecraft could be left connected in an awkward and dangerous way. Even scarier would be what legendary NASA engineer Bill Tyndall advocated for, a fire-in-the-hole staging. This is when the ascent stage engine is lit at the instant of staging. Performing such a maneuver while still in orbit, close to the surface, was even scarier than doing it on the surface, but it could be necessary if something went wrong during the final moments of landing and an abort was called for. Tyndall was overruled since such an abort was actually fairly unlikely and the test was just too dangerous. If the astronauts were hoping for a nice boring staging, however, they were in for a surprise. Moments before cutting the descent stage loose, Snoopy started gyrating wildly, prompting Cernan to blurt out, Son of a bitch! While fighting to regain control, Stafford flipped the staging switch and the Lem's lower half drifted away. The staging was a success, but the Lem was still seemingly out of control. At least for a bit. Stafford and Cernan are world-class pilots, after all, so within a couple of minutes, everything had settled down. But what had happened? The Apollo LEM actually had two guidance systems, the Primary Guidance Navigation and Control System and the Abort Guidance System, referred to as PINGS and AGS, respectively. The AGS wasn't as feature-rich as the PINGS, but was there as a redundant backup to get the astronauts safely back to the CSM in case of an emergency. This LEM staging was actually also a test of the AGS. So, was the AGS broken? Nope. It turns out that, like most computer errors, it was simply given the wrong instructions. Shortly before staging, Cernan reached out and flipped the mode control switch from off to at hold, or attitude hold. This would ensure that during staging, the AGS would simply keep the limb pointed in the direction it was already facing, nice and stable. Unfortunately, shortly after that, Stafford also reached over and flipped the switch, which was now placed on auto. This meant that rather than holding its attitude, the LEM started automatically seeking the CSM. Snoopy was looking for Charlie Brown. In practice, this manifested itself in wild and seemingly random gyrations. Just another scary moment, easily handled by the elite Apollo astronauts. One little side note on this, Cernan's outburst happened to be broadcast back to Houston over the airwaves thanks to a hot mic. This apparently caused quite a stir, with Cernan having to apologize multiple times for his vulgar language. From what I can tell, it was actually a pretty big deal. I guess times have changed because, given the circumstances, I was actually impressed by his restraint. And I feel pretty okay marking this episode as clean on the iTunes submission form. Phasing, rendezvous, and docking proceeded without incident, with the crew calling down, Charlie Brown and Snoopy are hugging and yet another minor tweak based on the experience of previous flights, while the LEM still approached the CSM, it was the CSM that performed the final docking maneuvers now, since it was considerably less awkward for the command module pilot. Stafford and Cernan transferred back to Charlie Brown, sealed the hatch, and prepared to jettison the LEM. 
One interesting tidbit I discovered while reading through the anomalies section of the official Apollo 10 mission report, like you do, was that when Snoopy was jettisoned, the cabin pressure abruptly dropped from about 4 PSI down to less than 1 and continued to drop slowly from there. It turns out that when the LEM is being jettisoned for good, rather than simply undocking, pyro mechanisms are fired to separate the entire docking mechanism from the CSM and leave it with the LEM. Due to a minor unrelated issue, the Apollo 10 crew were unable to depressurize the tunnel connecting the two spacecraft, so it was still full of air. It seems that with air already in the tunnel, the blast of the pyro mechanism caused a strong enough overpressure that the LEM hatch was blown inwards at the moment of separation. The air inside then rushed out, slamming the hatch shut again, but not creating a complete seal. Hence the abrupt drop and slow leak afterwards. Whoopsies. <laughs> Snoopy drifted off and later had its engine fired by Houston, sending it into a solar orbit, likely never to be seen again. With the main thrust of the mission complete, all that was left was to come home. You know how this works. This is the part where I say that after resting up, the crew fired the SPS again, it worked perfectly, they broadcast a few more shows on the lengthy journey home, splashed down right on target, and were quickly placed safely aboard an aircraft carrier. Hey, I already did it. So here's one more fun fact for you. On the way home, the crew picked up the record for fastest human travel before hitting the upper atmosphere of the Earth a scorching 11.08 kilometers per second, or 24,791 miles per hour. The record still stands to this day. Before we go, I'm sure there's one question that a lot of you are shouting at your various podcast playing devices. Why didn't they land? They were all the way out there. They got within 47,400 feet and came home. What's the deal? Small moves, Ellie. Small moves. They just weren't ready yet. There had only been one other piloted flight of the LEM. No one knew how the two spacecraft would perform in the environment around the moon and the effect of mass concentrations, aka big lumps in the moon, on the final trajectory still wasn't known. Besides all that, LEM-4, Snoopy, was never intended to land, so it was slightly heavier than the LEMs that followed. Let's be real, though. If this was launching in December of 1969, they would have found a way. They always do. Next time. Next time, we'll be taking one small step closer, but not quite the one you're hoping for yet. We're so, so close, but much like Apollo 10, we're just not quite ready yet. Join me in two weeks for a detailed deep dive on what, specifically what, the astronauts were doing, minute by minute, second by second, in the final hours before landing. What procedures were they following? What switches were they throwing? And why? Next time on The Space Above Us, how to land on the moon. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs> <laughs>